This is Literary Friction, and I'm Carrie Plitt, flying solo today without my wonderful co-host, Octavia Bright. This month on the podcast, we're bringing you an oldie but a goodie. It's our Arrested Development show, first broadcast in January 2015, live from the NTS studios. On this show, we talked about Arrested Development in fiction, and all the characters who refused to grow up in books, from Peter Pan to Rabbit Angstrom. Our guest was Emma Jane Unsworth, whose excellent second novel, Animals, features two female friends who are definitely in no rush to become adults. We also, as usual, discuss the theme and recommended books. But before we get to the show, we also wanted to share some exciting news. Literary Friction are teaming up with Faber Social for an event at The Social in London on Monday, February 1st. The theme is New Voices, and we've got a fabulous lineup planned, including Ned Bowman, Evie Wilde, Joanna Cannon, the Faber New Poets, plus more to be confirmed. There will also be DJs from NTS and our very own Eddie Knight playing tunes. We'd love to see you there. You can buy tickets and find out more information at fabersocial.co.uk. And now, here's our interview with Emma Jane Unsworth. Emma Jane Unsworth is the author of two novels, Hungry, the Stars and Everything, which won a Betty Trask Award, and Animals, published last May, which Catelyn Moran called With Now With Girls. She has worked as a journalist, a columnist for The Big Issue, and a barmaid. Her short story, I Arrive First, was included in the Best British Stories of 2012. Animals is the story of Laura and Tyler, two best friends who live together and lead each other astray through the pubs and bars and clubs of Manchester. But their hedonistic lifestyle is threatened by Laura's upcoming wedding. Will their friendship survive? Hi, Emma. Hello. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you uh, for having me. So I've asked you to start with a reading just to give us a sense of, of what the book is about and, and what it sounds like. And I think you're going to start from the very beginning. Sure. Yeah, I'll read from okay. the top. So this is the first chapter, which is called White Piss Good, Amber Piss Bad. <laughs> You know how it is. Saturday afternoon, you wake up and you can't move. I blinked and the floaters on my eyeballs shifted to reveal Tyler in her ratty old kimono over in the doorway. Way I see it, she said, glass in one hand, lit cigarette in the other. Girls are tied to beds for two reasons, sex and exorcisms. So, which was it with you? I squinted up at my right arm, which felt like it was levitating, but no, nothing so glamorous. The plastic bangle on my right wrist had hooplard over a bar on the bedhead during the night, manacling my hand and suspending my arm over the pillow. I wriggled upwards to release it, but only managed to travel an inch or so before a strange, elasticy feeling pulled me back. I looked down. My tights, or rather the left leg, I was still sluttishly sporting the right mid-thigh, had wrapped itself around a bed knob. I tugged. No good. The knot held fast. Get that for me, would you? I said. She'd moved across the room and was leaning against the wardrobe. Her wardrobe. Her room. We'd been out. Holy fuck had we been out. A montage of images spooled through the brain fog. Fizzy wine, flat wine, city streets, cubicles, highly experimental burlesque moves on bar stools. Tyler took her time looking for somewhere to put her cigarette. I knew she was really savouring the scene. This was one for the ever-burgeoning anecdote store to be wheeled out, exaggerated and relished on future nights that would doubtlessly end in similar indignities. Hey, remember the time you tied yourself to the bed? Killer. Where did you sleep anyway? I said. Oh, I didn't sleep. I fonzed it on the back lawn with a spritzer and my shades on. 
Funding it was making yourself feel better about things, aka the inevitable existentials, by telling yourself that you were cool and everything was fine. We also referred to it as self-charming. It had a 55% success rate, depending on location and weather. What time is it now? I asked. Tyler tugged at the knot, raised an eyebrow and threaded the tight leg into a straight black line, which she held taut to show me. Half past five. And what time did we get in? She pinged the tight leg at me and held up her hand. I thought she was saying five, but no, she was saying no. No forensic autopsies. I nodded. The effects of the day's self-charming were stable but critical. Don't think about endings. Don't look down. There were rules that had to be obeyed in order to guarantee a horror-free hangover. No news, no parental phone calls, some fresh air if you could tolerate the vertical plane, sitcoms, carbohydrates. I ran my swollen tongue over my unbrushed teeth, a farmish smell, furriness. How do you feel, she asked. Like an entire family of raccoons is nesting in my head. Nesting raccoons, how nice for you. I'd got two bull seals fucking a bag of steak. I sat up, oof, liquefying head rush. I looked down and caught sight of the prolapse duvet on the floor by the side of the bed, its insides lolling between the missing buttons of the striped cotton cover. I squinted at Tyler, 5'2", with cropped black hair sprung into curls, face like a fallen putto, deadly. She gripped her fag between her teeth as she opened her kimono and retied it tighter. She was wearing knickers but no bra, a bold move for the garden in March. She pulled the fag from her teeth and exhaled. I know this will only concuss you further, she said, but I'm getting excited about the Olympics. Great. Thank you, Emma. No problem. And I didn't do the American accent there, Carrie, which you'll be relieved to hear because I wouldn't inflict relieved. that upon you. But yeah, Although, Tyler's from Nebraska, but I wouldn't do that to you. Well, I was I was very swept away by your Mancunian accent. I was really enjoying oh, that. Oh, hey, um, Hearing it actually read in, in that accent was wonderful. Um, and I think that gives a sense of the real humor and energy of the book, uh, which was one of my favorite parts of it. And, and also this friendship, which is so destructive, but so close mm -hmm. and tight knit and... Yep sort of wonderful as well. Thank you. Um, so can you start by just telling us a bit about the inspiration for this book and how it came to you? Sure. So I started writing the book um, because I started thinking about the conversations that two girls might have after a night out, during a night out, before a night out. And I started making notes about them and just kind of, just because that I wanted to get down that dynamic, um, partly because... I enjoy nights out like that with my friends and just wanted to sort of like record and document some of that. But also, I guess at the point that I was at in my life, I, there was a sense of threat for me, I suppose, in terms of what was happening with a lot of the friends around me. I started writing the book in my early 30s when most of my friends were settling down and getting married and having kids and stuff, which is cool, but not everyone does that. And, and yet there was a sense of pressure that I felt and a sense, of, a sense of almost judgment that I wasn't doing that. And so there was also, yeah, as well as sort of documentation, there was a sense of defiance in that, you know, kind of why do you have to what is this what does growing up mean and what does it just mean having kids and getting married and getting a mortgage and blah 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 you know and and why why do I feel judged for not doing that and and still kind of like going out and partying and and you know so so yeah so so both of those things really I guess I wanted it to be a comedy a comedy duo um two women kind of like going out and having a raucous time um but also um what it did come from from a place of defiance and and I was kicking against um a place that I felt I was being maybe railroaded into yes and at one point Tyler says to Laura in reference to her wedding but there's no ceremony for friendship is there does friendship mean nothing in this world and I 
that rang true for me as somebody you know approaching my 30s where your friends for a long time are the people you rely upon um and the people that you share everything with and that you spend your time with and often that you live with and all of a sudden there's a shift where people start moving in with their boyfriends or girlfriends or any um did, did were you thinking about that because absolutely. that rang true to me absolutely i think we have all kinds of milestones and markers for romantic relationships um like you know getting engaged like getting married moving in together but actually friendship we don't have those milestones and markers and yet often your friendships are the most durable relationships of your life and they are the ones that you know that those are the people who are going to be with you till the end and yet we don't have any sort of like you know marker for that and and that that has always struck me as kind of odd i suppose and and that is why tyler in the book she really is you know she's flying the flag for friendship for all her faults she is sort of like saying you know hey you know we've been together for 10 years does that mean nothing to you and, and why is everything going to change why are you moving out so so I did yeah that, that definitely w w was an issue for me to write about talk a bit about Tyler as a creation because she is really the soul of this book even though Laura is the narrator Laura is the more well not sensible one she's a bit more sensible and she's the one contemplating these life changes but Tyler is just as you say flying the flag of defiance and yeah. friendship and um, she was the most fun to write and she was the one that I mean for me yeah she's like the star of the book even though she's not the narrator um for, for the most part of the book um she was the one that I was kind of with because she there's something about her that is so admirable for, for me I'm kind of like in awe of her because she is she's sovereign she is what she is and she she isn't changing for anyone whereas Laura because she's more of a kind of everyman figure as the narrator, you know, she is anxious and she's someone that, you know, I wanted to relate to and she probably has a lot more of, of my kind of like personality traits within her. Whereas Tyler, she isn't changing. She is the person that she is and she's just going to sail through life like the masthead of a ship and she is, you know, she is going and that's it. And 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 so, yeah, she was so much fun. It was so much fun to, to write someone who was so solid. Uh, but at the same time, for all of her... Um, kind of overt liberalism and so much, you know, that she she rails against the system and she's very proud of doing that. There's also something incredibly conservative about that, I think, and that's what I wanted to explore as well. Even though, you know, people say, you know, I'm I'm anti this, I'm anti that, and 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 that's great in lots of ways. But she is the fact that she isn't changing for anyone, even her best friend, is problematic. I think as well. You have to, well, I think I think you have to be flexible as people, and, and especially with with your friends, there has to be compromise. But there's something inherent in being inflexible that makes you conservative. Exactly. Because it means yeah. you shut yourself off to whole other possibilities of a yes. way of living and a way of being. Yeah. And that if you're going to be, I mean, I love Tyler as well for being so defiant, for being almost, you know, at my most destructive, what I wish I could have been. I don't think I ever went that far. But that you're right, this, this essence of kind of her sovereignty, which is so appealing as a reader, mm -hmm. um, but it makes her a cannonball in, in reality. And yeah. there aren't that many people who actually live that way because it's so destructive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually, yeah, inflexible. And and this whole thing about growing up is about learning about grey areas. And, uh, you know, the older I get, anyway, the more open I become to things mm -hmm. I never... You mm -hmm. know, they say you get more conservative as you grow up. I think it's the opposite. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you, your vista's open and you're able to see a lot of things. And Laura, because she goes through this evolution, that starts to happen. But Tyler, in her fixity, she's both mm -hmm. alluring and also by the end, it's kind of sad too, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really, it's very subtle the way that you write it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think I was thinking a lot about Laura still having a process to go through. Like we're talking about um, mm. this being, you know, a, a coming of age story and the fact that she's 
you know, 32 is actually quite tragic. Mm. Um, but I also wanted it to be funny, you know, the fact that this is a coming-of-age story about a woman who's 32. And, and she still does have... She's looking for something. She's searching. There's a metaphysical element to it. And that's partly why she drinks. It's partly why she takes drugs. It's partly why she goes out. She's looking for something. Whereas Tyler does it sheer, for, the, for the sheer hedonism of it mm. because she has been through a process in her past and she has reached a point of understanding of herself which is probably quite dark um, but that is there she's reached a point she's been through a process whereas Laura is is still searching and is yet to go through that and there's something repetitive as well about the the whole experience of hedonism I mm. think at one point Laura says the memories we'd make tonight would not be new ones even though they might look like it on the surface yeah. so there's that sense that something does need to change. Absolutely. I think, you know, it, it can reach that point, um, even though it feels like freedom. Um, it isn't always the case. And it certainly isn't the case for, for Laura in this book. She reaches a point where she does feel like she's just living in a loop. And what she's doing with her friend at the weekends and during the week a lot is, is just living through the same repetitions. They've got all these catchphrases which bond them, but also it gets quite boring for her. And also quite, um, she feels quite contained and quite trapped by it. And, and it's quite oppressive in the end. Um, and her relate her friend the friendship does become something that is penning her in and and that's not good um so so yeah absolutely and uh, you know even the most fun can become boring if you if you if you do it enough <laughs> so the theme of today's show is arrested development now you've said that this is a bit of a defiant book so you might disagree with that term in the <laughs> first place but um the, you know tyler and uh laura are definitely in no rush to settle down uh mm -hmm. laura a, a bit less so um, do you think that is a particular trait of the youth of our time? Do you think that's more prevalent now? or? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't, what does it actually mean, though? And this is something that I'm interested in. What does growing up actually mean? I, I don't know how that is defined. Um, does it mean kind of getting married? Does it mean having a kid? Does it mean being responsible for somebody else? Does it mean having a house? Does it mean knowing how to use a, a cafetiere? What, what does it, you know, what, <laughs> what does that mean, being grown up? I, I don't know what that means, but I'm interested in it. You know, it's, I, you know yeah, it's, yeah, it's a question. Well, I think, and, and the question that you kind of answer in the book is that it's about authenticity, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. about taking responsibility for yourself and all of the other stuff like the you know is it marriage is it house is it that's all irrelevant in some ways Tyler is grown up mm -hmm. because she's authentic mm -hmm. and Laura is not grown up because she's still inauthentic she's so easily led and her yeah. desires get co-opted by her partner and you know the whole theme you have running where she stops taking her birth control or they you know they, they're having unprotected sex there's not a choice that she's made she yeah. doesn't actually want to get pregnant but she's not authentic enough yet to be able to stake her claim I think that's right and I think it's a lot about ownership of oneself um, of and body ownership was a big thing I wanted to look at in the book yeah. um, especially for women, for women because yeah. you're pressured to do certain things stop doing certain things much more than men and and so I definitely want to look at that in the book and also the idea of ownership of a space around you that is your own to make your choices within so as well as the space you inhabit literally with your body then the sort of space around you you know that, that you live in um that as well is, is is so important I think to even if you know we can't define what being grown up actually is just having the space to question that that is your own to ask those questions within is is crucial i think and, and that's something that that you know that, that i wanted to explore in the book for sure mm. thinking of virginia wolf obviously yeah totally <laughs> but also the fact that she has to discard the people in her life to to reach that state to at least question who she is and what she wants to be both her well i 
am I giving too much away? No, I, um, I never mind that, by the way. Yeah, um, getting rid of her fiance and her best friend. I know because quite, it's sad. Isn't yeah, it? I, I wanted those relationships to have equal weight in her life. Like we were talking before about friendship, you know, not being given um, as much value in society. But I wanted her friendship and her um, her kind of romantic re- relationship to have equal weight and be equally oppressive um, because of that. And, and so they, it's like a tug of war for her, um, her fiance and her best friend. They both want her to be the person that they want her to be. And that's not actually good. Neither of those versions of her is actually her. And, and so she has to break free from both of them to, to kind of, you know, yeah, be herself. Yeah. And what I think is, is so what I loved so much in the book was that then the third tension is her writing and that actually in reality the best friend and the fiance take her away from that mm-hmm. and you know I'm going to give away the ending so if you don't want to know <laughs> plot curious and she ends up at her desk free from mm-hmm. those two relationships mm-hmm. with her pen yeah and that you know I wanted to ask you as a writer do you feel like the project of writing is a solitary one yeah I mean I think the writing definitely symbolizes her just having her own space to think and question and and that is what she's left with at the end but I also wanted it to be um like you said Virginia Woolf the room of her own at the end is really important because she's just been living with other people her whole life and and not had since childhood that sense of home um which I think is something that we all lose um I certainly felt it. You know, I've, I, I've lived out of boxes for, for many, many years and getting that sense of home back and that sense of a place where you have sanctuary, um, but also where you feel like, you know, you, you are free to, to sort of have lift off and be inspired and, and create what you want to create or be the person you want to be. Um, and But I also I wanted to have a glass of wine at the end as well because I, I didn't want it to be a cautionary tale. I really wanted it to investigate people's relationship with drugs and drink and you know and hedonism and and the cycles that we can find ourselves in but how they can be related to people as well and how actually she's not an addict and and I wanted to make that that very clear in the book and and she does have a place at the end that that is her own which she's free within but also she does have a glass of wine as well because I didn't because I think there are too many stories about as well where especially involving women where you know that there's there's some sort of like judgment put upon them when whenever you know there's drink or drugs involved and and so I definitely wanted her to still be drinking at the end and and kind of you know she you know she but on her own terms in complete control of that it's her will it's her choice and that's what she's doing and that's the crucial thing that I wanted there to be at the end as well and you mentioned women um there's one point where Rory who's this sort of professor character that she meets that she's very Mm -hmm. attracted to he um mocks her for suggesting that her misbehavior might be some kind of feminist protest and but do you think there's something in that i mean for me it there was something that was very empowering about these two characters who didn't resemble a lot of women that you normally see in fiction and did and Mm -hmm. defied the expectations of society in many ways yeah i think that the sort of the physical bad behavior the drinking the drugs the shagging around which they do i think that that is um a reflection of the, of of their, their yeah their political stance in that they're refusing to be put in a box and they're refusing to be told what to do, and and so they are kind of you know that they want to live an unconventional life um, in a lot of ways and so yeah th- because that is reactionary um, to being being railroaded then then yeah but but in itself I don't know I think mostly for me as a writer that was just fun 
<laughs> it was just fun to write about girls getting up to really bad shit on nights out. And then so, um, yeah, so that, so I wanted there to be lots of kind of really, really, yeah, terrible escapades that they get up to around Manchester and London and the Edinburgh Festival. And I just wanted them to to be just these awful people that you, that you see on nights out, but that you kind of secretly admire because they just don't give a fuck because they're so <laughs> off their heads. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's um, in, in terms of their relationship, it's not sustainable. But <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> I like that answer. I'm sure people have pointed out, though, that it feels like some sort of part of a larger cultural trend of girls um, and young women who are doing things that aren't expected of them, who are bad. And I don't want to say bad because that gives it a moral flavor. But um, but, you know, I'm thinking of the TV series Girls or um, I know you've done a lot of events with Zoe Pilger, who we had on earlier, who wrote Eat, Eat My Heart Out, which is is very much somebody going against the grain. Did, mm. Were you thinking about that at all when you wrote this? or No, 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 it's right. And I think I was really lucky um, that, that there was a kind of wave of, of stuff happening that, that animals fitted in with, um, stuff like Zoe's book. Um, there was the, there seemed to be a sort of groundswell of, uh, sort of an appetite for um, female protagonists um, behaving unconventionally and railing against the system and going against the grain and and so yeah it, it did all seem to happen at the same time but I didn't I didn't know when I was when I was actually writing it but I felt like it was it was lucky that the book kind of like you know got got you know swept up in that and, and became part of it because I think it's you know in terms of looking at at the past and certainly in terms of literature male characters have always been more able to just have general existential crises and general kind of they they can just like wander and think and drink and like Jack Kerouac where's the female Jack Kerouac you know you know there isn't that that kind of that same sort of freedom for women to just female characters just you know do their own thing and so I definitely wanted to to write something that that nodded to to that that gap and that niche and 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 I did want to nod to sort of the you know the picaresque tales of old um so I gave each of the um chapters in the book a heading like it was an adventure story like the roguish tales like Don Quixote because there's mm. you know there's nothing that, that that I've read that that has women doing that kind of thing just kind of bounding around town and just being dicks and the original title was the rogue wasn't it it was it was called the rogue and I was very attached to that yeah. um, as you as you become attached to, to titles when you've been working on a book um, but actually I think animals is much better um but yeah that was that was completely because you know I, I wanted to, to write something that was picaresque that was a, a roguish um anti-heroine um having adventures around town and 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 being operating outside of the system and what was expected of her yeah and tyler is that she absolutely is she's the picaresque hero extraordinaire um i wanted to ask you though because the there's something about her ability to be that roguish that Laura isn't ever quite able to match up to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Tyler's backstory is coming from a foundation of a certain amount of wealth and privilege in some ways. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's a factor? Do you think that you can only fuck the system properly if you have that bedrock of financial backing or, you know, her father bought her the flat or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think that Tyler definitely does have that that financial security to to go out all the time and not really bother about the the job that she's doing not have to worry about that but at the same time she does have quite a dark past in other ways she doesn't have the emotional stability that Laura has even though Laura is anxious and worries about things and is and is conscious that she's searching for something I think that she yeah she she does have 
she has a family that she can always run back to, which Tyler doesn't have. Um, so, so, but also because for me as a writer, that was more interesting to investigate. Um, Tyler is fantastic um, as a kind of set character, as a kind of foil and as a kind of um, sidekick. But actually, there's nothing to investigate um, in, if you've got a character who doesn't want to grow or who has nothing that she feels she has to learn, it's quite a static um, sort of like, you know, p position for a character to hold. So she was great, you know, to bounce Laura off, but she wouldn't, Tyler could never actually be the narrator of, of a novel that I would want to write, I don't think. Why did you set this novel in Manchester? Uh, I know it's somewhere you used to live, but did it seem like a particularly good place to yeah. have these two characters bouncing around? It did, because it's, yeah, I, I wanted it to be a small-ish city. I mean, Manchester is quite a big city, but in other ways, it's quite a small city. The, the city centre is, you know, half a mile across. And so things could happen. It's, it feels quite sort of like contained and, and, and like a little crucible of activity at the weekends, especially. Um, and I've just had some really weird nights out in Manchester over the course of my life and ended up in some really crazy places. So so I wanted to, to write about that. And and it, I guess it's I didn't know at the time, but in retrospect... Um, I, I think part of me must have sensed that I was going to move away from Manchester because I've set two books there now. Um, and I think, yeah, I'd kind of, it, it was it was a bit of a, a sort of Dear John letter to Manchester as well, a bit of a sort of like a, a kiss and a love letter. And, you know, thanks very much. See you in a few years. And, and so I did, there was a sense of documentation in terms of um, describing the architecture of the city because um, it's a place that I wandered around at various hours of the day and um, and so I did want to to yeah to document that from a place of, of affection um, and and yeah just just sort of the craziness of, of various times that I've had there I wanted to, to put some of that down to amuse my friends more than anything yeah. <laughs> do you ever worry that people will equate you too much with these characters as a young woman who used to live in Manchester writing about young women and you know your first novel was also about, about young mm -hmm. women living in Manchester uh, does that worry you or do you not mind oh, you know I've just I've just feel like I've been hemorrhaging cool for years and I just can't worry about that shit anymore it's just like you know <laughs> you know yeah you worry 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 and I wrote my first book and when it came to the final draft of it I took out all the sex scenes because I was worried about like my parents and my old boss and stuff reading it and um and and then I really regretted that and I just thought you know what fuck it I'm just gonna like be really honest and just write from and I'm, I'm not saying that obviously it's fiction um but at the same time I did write that from a place of emotional truth and a lot of the questions that Laura's asking were my questions when I was writing that book and that was really important to me to just be honest about that because that is stuff that I really care about and that I really wanted to investigate and interrogate um, about stuff that's happening in my mind and, and that I could you know see about my friends and just that place of curiosity and so yeah um, and I know I kind of like yeah I, I, I don't I don't worry about that so much anymore um, and and I think probably I mean I, I don't think I could quite do what these girls do um, <laughs> so I'd, I'd be quite flattered if anyone thought I had the stamina <laughs> I think that really comes across the emotional truth part I think that's really where the power of the character Laura lies is that and that's why people connect so deeply to the book because it, it is that it's really evident that there's that kernel of truth running through and like you said Tyler is such a great foil because she's almost mythical in some ways you know because we don't have access to that mm -hmm. core of her or she doesn't have it or whatever it is um so I think that really comes across very much yeah yeah, yeah well done thank you. <laughs> thank you we both really enjoyed it I oh, think thanks, um, guys. and yeah I there there is that that 
dual sense of being repelled by all of the things they're doing, but also just really impressed. <laughs> it's so funny because I've had like various responses to the book and a few people have um, sort of said, you know, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself, you know, glorifying this and that and la la la. And I hope you get such a thing happening to your liver. And then other people have, have said, um, is that all they can do? Oh my God, oh I'd do that in God. like an hour. They can just like, you know, do four <laughs> grams of Coke and two bottles of wine and I could, I could do that in like five minutes. So I've had like, you know, both sort of sides of the yeah. story, you know, yeah. Well, but that <laughs> speaks to how a novel like this really makes people think about their own relationship to yeah. things like drugs and alcohol. <laughs> I mean, I certainly mm -hmm. did. Oh God, yeah, me too. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> Emma, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so um, much for having you, me. You've what been a, pleasure, a real joy and a pleasure and Absolutely. had us laughing the whole time. Um, the book is called Animals by Emma Jane Unsworth. It's published by Canongate and it is in bookstores everywhere. So if you like what you've heard, please pick up a copy. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. Thanks. All right. In honor of Emma Jane Unsworth, who you just heard, our theme today is growing up. No, it's not growing up. It's arrested <laughs> development. But the reason I said that is because I wanted to start with this question that came up in our interview is what is growing up? Mm. Um, and there are various different definitions of that. And there is definitely a definition that society gives us about marriage, children, having a mortgage. Which to me, it sounds terrifying. But what do you think, Octavia? Well, I, kind of like I said, really, in the interview, I think it's about authenticity and discovering. I, mean, it sounds, I know it sounds a bit uh, wishy-washy or namby-pamby or whatever, but finding your true self and like what your motives are as a soul and what you want from your life. And I think that's especially, well, I think it's hard for anybody, but I think especially hard for women because the, the woman's role has been co-opted by society in such an intense way for so long. And we still live within this patriarchal structure that, that means that a woman's body doesn't belong to herself. And like Emma Jane was saying, like the, this, the, the importance of a woman having a space from within which to muse. I think that that's true of everybody, the, the importance of a, of, a, of a human soul having that space. But it's a harder struggle for women to find it. But yeah, I, I, I don't think growing up is about kids, marriage, mortgage. And I think those are cop-outs, cop really. I think there are lots of people who don't want those things, but find themselves forced into those shoeboxes because because it's hard to rail against them but yeah and yet a lot of depictions of arrested development in literature i'm thinking and in film actually we've we've seen especially lately these the entire oeuvre of you know adam sandler is basically about yeah. people who don't want to fit into those boxes but eventually sort of do in sort the of end. Do. well there's a great one um i think it's called young adult with charlie's theron in it that I thought of actually when I read Animals, um, which which manages to moralise less <laughs> than most of them. Because there is always that thing, I think, in narratives of arrested development, there is always that moral tinge, which I hate, and I find so frustrating, you know, because that's what, when I come back to this thing about being about authenticity, it's not about what people tell you is good and wholesome and what you should do. Um, one of the things, one of the great privileges of living in the Western world and being white, you know, it comes along with the territory, is, is that we have the space to think about what we want. We don't, we're not crushed by um, a, a regime that forces us any longer. And you could argue it, it's definitely 
a more recent phenomenon. I mean, people have refused to grow up throughout the ages. I'm thinking of Falstaff, maybe. Oh, dear Falstaff. Um, <laughs> who, who his, his love of hedonism is definitely connected. And, and you see Hal having to discard him when he becomes the king. So he's yeah. very much representation of, of Prince Henry's youthful disobedience. Yes, um, absolutely. But, and there's Puck. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do think recently and I mentioned the word kiddled in my interview I, I do think that is something that has happened when people are making decisions later in their life about how they want to live um, people are living with their parents later in their lives and a lot of critics recently and I don't know what you think about this have been arguing especially in America for some reason um, that the, there's something th that we're reverting to, to childish things that culturally mm. we're sort of obsessed with childhood, um, reading YA fiction, watching movies about, you know, Judd Apatow and his friends living at home and playing video games. Um, I wonder, what do you think? Well, I think it's a sociological phenomenon. I think if you look historically as well, you know, the the, the baby boomer generation um, reacting against the war. And then I think now there's a kind of there's so much terror and fear and, and everything that people retreat into fantasy and people retreat into the dangerous, and I do think it is dangerous, idealized nostalgia of innocence and childhood that's actually a, a lie anyway. <laughs> Children are not very innocent at all. And uh, I, don't, I don't think it helps us as a society. I don't think it helps us as individuals to idealize one uh, part of life over another because all you really have is the present. Like That's, that's what's going on. Um, so I, I'm a bit... I also think, yeah, in America, it's funny, there's a woman who wrote, wrote a book about this. I was reading about it last night in preparation for the show. Very conservative, right, um, right wing kind of approach to it, saying how dads look like their sons. They both wear the drop-waisted jeans and caps and, like you said, play video games and everything. Um, and it was, again, very moralistic, the way that she's, she's sort of saying, you know, a grown-up should be a grown-up, should wear a suit, should be authoritarian, should be disciplined, blah, 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 blah. Um, and again, I don't agree with that either. I think any dogma like that should be questioned. I agree. Um, I also, I don't know, I, I, in a way, I agree with these critics like Leslie Fielder and A.O. Scott, who wrote a really long piece in the New York Times recently, that, ha that find a problem with this. I'm not quite as extreme as Leslie Fielder, who said that everyone, oh no, sorry, not Leslie Fielder, I'm reading the, long, the wrong name, Ruth Graham. Um, who argued that pe adults should be embarrassed for reading YA fiction because I think that's, I mean, frankly, that's, that's ridiculous. ridiculous. And it it smacked to me of an op-ed piece that felt like it needed to have a strong opinion to get, you know, retweets and Click clicks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's something, I don't know, I, you know, I love playing video actually I don't love playing video games but <laughs> I, I love to say I didn't I, know this you know, about you I darling. love going out I love not having responsibility I love playing board games and all of those things but there is something to me that feels a bit irresponsible about uh about people not really confronting adult themes and adult complexities mm. um and also you know I I in in literature as a whole I think it's it's I, I think it's fine to have a mirror of what's happening. So girls or, you know, even these movies about guys who refuse to, you know, grow up and get somebody pregnant and sit at home all day smoking weed. But it seems I don't know, I, I sort of am hunger for adults doing adult things. Really? Sometimes, yeah. I don't know if I 
agree with you. I mean, I don't, I think the difference is whether there's, okay, so this, I'm trying to think of a definition, but childhood allows you to be very selfish because you, you're not thinking of other people because you're developing yourself. And for me, the switch to adulthood is about becoming less self-focused and being more plugged into the society around you. But if you're doing that, feel free to play as many video games as you want. I don't think that sort of being attached to childish things by definition m makes you childish. I think it's very much about the attitude with which you're engaging with the world and how you're living. Um, I suppose, you know I mean? yeah. And I, and I think probably a lot of my distaste for these things are centered around the depiction of men who refuse to grow up, but then there are all these sort of archetypal strong women around yeah, them who yeah. know how to have babies and hold down a serious job and are somehow attracted to these men anyway. and they're like so good at multitasking yeah. and we're getting into films now we're supposed to be talking about literature i, I <laughs> haven't really i haven't yet read a book well ex except there is this man that exists throughout literature i think especially american literature mm. that's running away from oh, yeah. responsibility um and that's not to say that he should you know everyone should have a family but I'm thinking especially of John Updike, say mm. Rabbit Run, um, which he is literally, literally running, running away from his Makes wife, me think from of his Philip family, Roth. from responsibility. And he's yeah. a hero for that. Yeah. And that was during the big dick swinging 60s when lots of men were, you know, railing against societal responsibility. But it remains a, a theme and it remains an act, a heroic act. And I, I wonder whether we should be celebrating that. I don't think we should be celebrating running away from those things, but I think we should be celebrating thinking outside the box about how we want to live and what we want adult life to, to mean and to be. And I think one of the things that makes me very sad is the lack of play in people's lives generally. And that this idea that adulthood is a suit that's hanging on a hanger and it means early to bed, early to rise, you know, no fun, no dancing, no music, mortgage, bills, yada, yada, yada. We create the society we live in. Is that the structure that we want? You know, it frustrates me how little imagination people have about these things. Um, you can be an adult in any way you want, as long as you're being true to yourself and you're being a good person in the world. You're being a force for good, not a force for negativity. Yes. I agree with that, definitely. Um, so let's talk about our favorite books about arrested development. Alrighty. Do you want to start, Octavia? Um, I do. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to find the thing. Yeah, here we go. Okay, so for me, it's a French novel called Bonjour Tristesse by Françoise Sagan. Um, in English, it's Hello Sadness. Uh, I love it. It's one of the first books I read in French when I was younger. Um, I've not, not, never read it in translation, but I'm sure I'm sure it's good in translation. Anyway, it was written in 1954 when Sagan was only 18 years old, and it's quite short. And um, it's really affecting. It follows the lives and loves of 17-year-old Cécile and her libertine father, Raymond, who's a completely classic French male character who lives as a sovereign, but as a very selfish dick, basically. Um, and it's a summer they spend together on the French Riviera. The mother is dead. Um, and he is this kind of amoral figure. And he quotes Oscar Wilde to excuse his philandering behavior, saying, sin is the only note of vivid color that persists in the modern world. So that's his philosophy of life, which doesn't necessarily align itself that well with fatherhood. Um, and we see how it's his arrested development in turn, arrests the development of his daughter. Um, and it's beautifully told, it's very tragic, and it's sort of a story of sexual de jealousy and sexual development, and the pains of coming of age for both father and daughter. Um, so would you say they escape their arrested development? I've, I've never read both. I'm not, I'm not going to say what happens, oh. but it's very sad, and it's very 
beautiful. It's very touching. And it was it just felt so true. It felt so, so true. And I was probably 15 when I read it and she wrote it at 18. It's about the 17 year old girl. And it was very much connected to what I was going through. And then I read it again in my early 20s and thought, God, no, it's a really it's a very, very uh, beautiful description of it. But that kind of the sadness of it, too. And the selfishness The f- Raymond is incredibly selfish. And Cecile is this kind of young figure and he's he's not doing his duty of fatherhood for her, to her, does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, but it's beautiful. I think everybody should read it. I've been told by numerous people to read that book, so I think I just have to get down to it. Just do it. I'll have to read the translation. It's very short. It will only take you a day. Um, Well, I wanted to recommend a much more recent book called The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. by Adele Waldman, which I think was published a couple years ago. Um, Yeah. And it is a comedy of manners centered around Nate, a literary editor in modern day Brooklyn. Uh, Nate is an adult in some senses. He holds his own job. He has an apartment. He has lots of friends. You know, he is doing everything right for his age group, but he just can't settle down with women. Uh, He has this series of relationships that we follow through uh, the novel. And we're in the free indirect style. We are privy to his internal monologue about the various relationships that he's having and um I just think that Adele Waldman is so good at plumbing the depths of the intellectual emotionally stunted male psyche I mean it was just (laughs) it rang so true to me in terms of a lot of men that I know um and and about this about the way that he rationalizes everything that um, he does but is still making terrible choices and making people feel terrible and i think if you're a woman and you read this you will recognize so many men that you know and sort of feel better about your experience and <laughs> and and that's not to say that this is just like terrible revenge porn written by women about men because i have talked to men about it who i thought would hate it because i hated this character so much i mean in the way that the best characters make you hate them, but also sort of you're so attracted to them. I yeah. mean, I, like Lolita. I mean, he's not a molester, but in that way. Um, but then I asked my male friends about it and they were like, oh, yeah, she completely understands the male psyche. I don't even know how she did that, which I thought was amazing. Wow. So what everyone should read this <laughs> because you'll either see yourself or see somebody, you know, or just understand just see how the mind works in this really wonderful observant way i really want to read it now yes so um let's talk about our recommendations now um why don't i start now my recommendation is sort of not a recommendation but (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of a recommendation i'll just um so i read (laughs) i read narrow road to the deep north by richard flanagan which won the booker over christmas and Do you know, I was expecting to absolutely love this because I've heard from so many people that it was so moving and such a wonderful way of of showing the depth of life and sadness. And um, I I don't know if I felt that way. Um, I think particularly because now I'm just talking about how much I hate um, men, but (laughs) (laughs) but I'm just a little sick of the the narrative about a sort of broken man who has flaws. He's a philanderer, this main character, Dorigo Evans, um, Mm. who's Australian and survives the Burma death railway. Um, And it's very much about the beginning of his life and the end of his life and his experience there. Um, But he has a good heart and it's, and you know, he's very stoic and it just, it just seemed to 
be a story that had been told before, even if transported to a different place in time. Mm. Um, and I was less interested in it for that reason. And because I think Flanagan was trying so hard to capture every facet of such a horrible, horrible time, the Burma Death Railway, when... I know nothing about yeah, it, Yeah, so actually. I didn't know anything about it either. Basically, um, the Japanese had a lot of prisoners of war, and they wanted to build a railroad from Thailand to Burma. Um, and I think with a combination of slaves and prisoners of war, many who were Australian made them build this railway. The conditions were so horrible that I think something like a quarter of the people working on the railroad died. I, I mean, it was basically torture That's awful. Um, of, of all kinds of things of, you know, disease, but also just like lack of spirit. So it's incredible. It's incredibly depressing episode. And it, it was captured very well, but also I think he was trying too hard to capture the truth and the narrative felt fragmented anyway, mm. but burn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to also say that I think people should read it because I have been talking with everyone I know about it and well, everyone, has, your mind, everyone has different um, different views about it and different things to say. So there's my half recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to let you take over now. Okay. Um, I am recommending The Assassination of Margaret Thatcher by Hilary Mantel. Um it's not an unreserved recommend recommendation either, actually, but I, I did enjoy it. Um, it's my first introduction to Mantel's writing. I haven't read Wolf Hall, um, and I have to admit, I'm not tempted to. It doesn't appeal to me at all, even though lots of people I know really loved it. Um, but I really enjoyed her short stories. Um, I think her style is is great for the short. It's very direct. It's very unfrilly. Um, she gets straight to the action in, in a very economical way, which is kind of what you want. Um, and there's one that really stood out. I mean, some of them are weaker than others, which is always the case in a short story collection. It's quite a tricky literary form anyway, especially if you sit down and read them all, which I did. Um, you know, you're not necessarily giving them all a chance. But anyway, the story, Sorry to Disturb, was my favourite by a long way. Um, and it was originally, I think, published in the London Review of Books as a memoir piece. Um, and it's really, it's about the discomfort and pitfalls of cross-cultural sexual politics. Um, and it manages to be really funny, really disturbing, and totally recognisable for anyone who spent time living in another country, and especially if you're a woman, because it's very much about the female experience of m missed understanding between a man and a woman. Um, but yeah, they're clever, they're easy to read, um, and she's, she's excellent on the well-observed details of life. So I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would, but it's not the favourite thing I've read ever. Well, resounding recommendations <laughs> from both <laughs> Carrie and Octavia. Go out and buy it, people. Um, and now let's talk about uh, books that are coming out next month that we are looking forward to. I thought in honor of uh, Emma Jane Unsworth, who's published by Canongate, we'll have two books that are coming out from Canongate, her publisher. Um, the first one is The First Bad Man by Miranda July, which is published on the 19th of February by Canongate. July is a filmmaker and author of many short stories, including the collection... No one belongs here more than you. Uh, she has a wonderful story called Roy G. Spivy that was in The New Yorker and I think about all the time. It's about a woman sitting next to a man on a plane who's a celebrity and what transpires from there. She's really funny and yeah, really observant. Um, and a sort of beautiful simplicity to her prose, I think. 
um, I'm really looking forward to this novel, which is her first. And um, I thought this quote from Andrew Solomon, who wrote Far From the Tree, which was a, a book that did really well last year, um, was said something very deep and profound about this story, uh, this novel. So he says, with the first bad man, Miranda July provides an audaciously original, often hilarious map of the ever-expanding reach of unhinged imagination in America. With IMAX-scale emotional projections and a post-gay regimen of sexual fantasies, July takes us on a picaresque journey in which the heroine's ultimate challenge turns out to be a stunningly ordinary circumstance more transfixing than the virtual caprices a 21st century mind can muster. Wow. Intense. I mean, that intense. that happens she with Coates. She is intense, though. That happens with Coates, but, the, you know, that sounds very exciting to me. Yeah, me too. Um, mine is Out Today, and it's Guantanamo Diary by Mohamedou Oudslahi. And I think this has actually been serialized in The Guardian, hasn't yes, it? Yes, and it's read a, they've had actors reading they've it. They've had actors reading it, and I, I read a little bit of it um, yesterday, and it was incredibly uh, intense in, in all the right ways. Um, well, is it fair to say that about <laughs> someone who's been imprisoned? Anyway, since 2002, Mohamedou Oudslahi has been imprisoned at the detainee camp at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. And in all these years, the United States has never charged him with a crime. Although he was ordered to be released by a federal judge, the U.S. government fought that decision, and there is no sign that United States plans to let him go. Three years into his captivity, Slahi began a diary recounting his life before he disappeared into U.S. custody and daily life as a detainee. Um, and it's not merely a vivid record of an incredible miscarriage of justice, but a very personal memoir, um, really frightening, but at times also very funny um, and actually surprisingly gracious um, and very relevant right now for what, what we're going through culturally and, and reckoning and looking at, at the kind of atrocities that we as the, the West have, have committed. It makes the theme of our show seem pretty silly in comparison, doesn't it? <laughs> it does a little bit, actually. It does a little bit. But yeah, I, I, I'm going to go and listen to the, the actors reading extracts later because the bit that I read last night was very... Um, it felt like a very important... It feels like a very important thing to be engaging with right now for all of us. Agreed. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Octavia, and also Emma Jane Unsworth, who's actually sitting in the studio right now. Hello, Emma. <laughs> Thank you for staying and listening to us Babylon. Um, <laughs> she thinks Bless we're you. great. Yes. <laughs> Everyone should read animals. They should. We're back next month on the 27th with author Alex Christoffi, um, who wrote Glass and who has just been named one of 2015's new faces of fiction by The Observer. Wow. Yes. There was a big spread with his photo. Oh, his Very face, exciting. his actual yeah, face. I know. <laughs> um, I'm Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Fiction on NTS. That was our Arrested Development show with Emma Jane Unsworth. Octavia and I are wishing you a very, very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and we'll be back with a new show in January. I'm Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction.